morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today. I am your host, Scott Lowe, and my goal today with this episode of the Full Stack Journey podcast is to help equip and prepare listeners for your journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and public cloud environments. Today, we're gonna to be talking about a sort of critical piece of everything that we build when we're out there building environments, but it's, uh, I think, probably an often overlooked piece of that uh, overall structure, and that is public key infrastructure, or PKI. And joining me to talk about PKI, I have um, Linda Ikechukwu, uh, who is joining us from Small Step. So Linda, how are you today? I'm fine, Scott, how are you? I am doing so very well. Thank you so much for joining. Before we get into talking about public infrastructure and sort of what it is and the key components and why we need to worry about it, uh, you want to take a moment and sort of introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me today. My name is Linda Ikechko, and I'm currently a developer advocate at Small Step Labs. Now, um, Small Step Labs is an open core company, and we build tools that make peak care management easy. Um, uh, that's probably one of the reasons why I pitched talking about PKI on the podcast today. And the other reason is that um, since joining Small Step, uh, I've been learning so much about PKI. And the more I learn, it's just intriguing and fascinating. So I feel like um, it would be a great opportunity for me to come and demystify this for like others who are struggling with the concept. So um yeah, from my background, I studied computer engineering in the university. Um, I've been a front-end engineer, and I used to work as a cloud solutions engineer at Huawei um, before joining Small Step as a developer advocate. So, yep, that's me. Awesome. Great. Thank you, Linda. Is there... Um... We'll, we'll give you the opportunity again later in the show, but is there a, a Twitter handle or, you know, a, a blog URL where folks might want to connect with you that you want to share? These days, I'm just mainly on Twitter. I don't maintain like a blog anymore, <laughs> at least not an engineering focused blog, <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at underscore MS Linda. That's really just it. Okay. Awesome. Great. Well, listeners, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to connect with Linda, then be sure and connect with her. On, on Twitter. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I really appreciate the your perspective you just shared about, you know, wanting to come in and demystify that because that is truly and honestly like the core of why I do this podcast is that there are all these technologies that are out there and, and in the, the technology world is just moving so fast. And I, I felt like if there was something I could do to get other like-minded folks on the podcast and be able to share what we've learned with others to help them on their journey, I just think it's it's worth the time. So thank you again for being here. All right. So first, we're going to do something a little a little lighthearted, um, not not serious. We're just going to ask you a couple like questions, you know, to to help listeners get a get a feel for who Linda is, right? Um, Silly little questions, nothing, nothing, nothing serious, right? So it's things like, um, okay. you know, what is your preferred code editor when you're in the terminal? Is it Emacs or is it VI? Um, VI. Okay, all right. Um, and what's your preferred operating system? Linux, macOS, or Windows? Huh. Um, I think when I used to work with, right now is macOS because I don't have to do any so much terminal issues, but previously was Linux. So I'm a bit in between, but yeah, 
Mac does it for me right now. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. I use Mac OS as well because like I can just get stuff done. But if I really had my choice, yeah. I'd probably use Linux. Um, all right. Final question. Mouse, trackpad, or a little pointer thing on the ThinkPad? Hmm. Mouse. Okay. All right. Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for answering those. I appreciate it. Again, nothing serious there. Just, you know, a little fun to, to share a little bit with the uh, listeners. So uh, we're going to be talking about public key infrastructure. Probably the most burning question on my mind, um, given that I can sometimes be a little bit of a grammar nerd, is when we're talking about it, should, should we refer, be referring to it as PKI or as a PKI? Um, so I, I think that PKI and APKI are both like factually correct. Um, when you're talking about PKI, it's like the general term of like PKI. And when you say APKI, it's referring to like an implementation of like an, an organization's PKI or something. Got yeah. it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I, you know, most listeners probably know, at least at a, at a high level, what what we're talking about when we say PKI or when we say public key infrastructure. But do you want to just before we jump into talking about sort of the major elements of it and you know how these things are used, all that kind of stuff? Do you want to just give the listeners you know a high level definition, sort of like, hey, this is this is what we're talking about when we say PKI. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when you hear infrastructure, you're thinking of like basic facilities that are needed to like, you know, facilitate the operation of something. So like in, in P PKI is everything or the facilities you need to put in place to efficiently use public key cryptography to um, securely exchange data between two entities and identify those entities too in the process to make sure that the entities you're exchanging data with are actually the entities you intend to you know, exchange data with. So it's, uh, it's an umbrella term that's for like everything, all the stuff you need to put in place in order to issue, distribute, uh, use, verify, revoke, and just generally manage and interact with certificates and public keys. Okay, perfect. And that was a, that's a good definition. I like the analogy. You know, we're talking about infrastructure being sort of the basic things that are needed to do whatever it is we're going to do, right? Um, and here we're mm -hmm. talking about the infrastructure needed to use public public keys or public key cryptography. Um, yeah. I also want to call out, make sure that I have it correct. Like, you know, a key aspect of, of public key cryptography is not only sort of, I guess, encryption, like securing or ensuring the confidentiality of data, but it's also ensuring the identity of who we're communicating with, right? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, so it, it combines encryption and authentication together. You're able to encrypt communication, you're able to encrypt data, and you're able to also identify entities. And that's when like certificates come into play. Right, okay. So now we're getting into some of the elements of what actually makes up um, a PKI, um, if somebody were to go and implement this. Um, so what are sort of the high level things? I mean, we were talking about public keys, so I'm assuming, you know, public keys are going to be part of it. Right. And then you mentioned certificates. <laughs> um, but, uh, what else, what else do we have here? And, and I don't know where you want to start. Now um, you want to start like at the bottom and work your way up. Uh, let's say how I visually think about it, but, or you want to start at the top and work your way down. I don't know. 
Okay, so I think that um, the major elements of like PKI is like the certificate and the certificate authority. Yeah, so um, let's start with the certificate authority. Um, a, a certificate authority is say in your country, you need to like get a, an international passport. The issuing body that gives you an international passport and verifies the claims that you make. Okay, this is my name, you know, um, this is my birth date, um, and whatever else is included in your passport. That institution or that body is known like an issuing authority. Yeah, so in this case, a certificate authority is an entity that issues public key certificates that's um unlike a low level that's what it is so um it's uh it's an issuer that issues a certificate and signs the certificate uh it's basically saying hey um when mr a presents this certificate to mr b let it be known that i am verifying as a, an entity of trust that I am, that the details contained in this certificate or the claims that this certificate make are correct. Yeah, so that's what a certificate authority is in a nutshell. Okay, so, um, and I guess this ties back to other things that you haven't mentioned yet that we could also bring in and sort of things like, um, you know, uh, a root of trust, right? Meaning that, you know, okay, you give the example of an issuing passport. so. In order for, let's say, if I'm I'm in the United States and if I were traveling to, you know, let's say, you know, Portugal, where I went to Portugal last uh, November, um, if I were traveling to Portugal, then we would have to say that Portugal trusts that the U.S. government can issue this document and that they have verified the information on the document, the passport, yeah. um, then that that it is factually correct, right? Um, and in the same light, you know, certificate authority. Um, we have to trust that that certificate authority has in some manner verified or factually ensured that the information they're giving is correct. And we have to trust that certificate authority. And then if we trust that certificate authority, then all of the certificates that are then um, issued or signed by that authority can then also be trusted. And I guess that's you know sort of the whole scenario. Like if you go to connect to some site who is using uh, an untrusted you know, root, which doesn't really happen much these days, seems like it used to happen a lot back in the day. Yeah. I might be dating myself, but uh, it doesn't seem to have much. But that was because, you know, you weren't trusting that 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 CA, you did, then therefore, no, the certificates are trusted, right? Yeah. Um, so um, th th that's known as like, um, that's like web PKI right now that we're referring to. That's um, where you um enter like the url of a public website on your browser and it shows up all like you know with the secure uh the padlock icon on your browser showing you that this runs on https and has like a valid certificate from a certificate authority that is trusted by your os or like your browser so um that's web pki but uh, and for the most part, that runs smoothly now. We barely have like um, sites having like um, certificates that are not valid or like unverified. But where this comes into play is more for internal websites and internal systems and applications. Because in these cases, it's not very ideal to use um, 
public certificate authorities. And when I say public certificate authorities, these are authorities or certificate authorities that have been um that have gone through some process and have been trusted by like um um I forget the um uh, the body of like the organization or body that manages like browsers and yeah um yeah i don't know if it's the worldwide web consortium w3c yeah yeah that's it yeah that's it so we're referring to um certificate authorities that have gone through some rigorous process and have been certified as like you know trustworthy by this body but um when you want to manage PKI within your internal system, it's not ideal to use um, public CAs, that's public certificate authorities, um, for a bunch of reasons. And one of them is that public CAs are mandated to like publish information of like whatever they do on like a log. So this means that um, if you're using like public CAs to issue certificates for your internal websites, um, I could go to a public website and find information about like URLs of your internal applications and your internal websites or whatever. And that's not very nice. So that comes to the need for you to have your own like internal CA. And for most of these podcasts, when I say CA, that's probably what I'm referring to, like an internal CA and internal root of trust just within your organization or your home lab or whatever. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point, and and um, I think making that connection between the way it works with a public CA, you know, again, as you pointed out, a lot of this stuff just works now, right? We we don't really run into issues that much anymore. Um, but what yeah. we're really talking about is, you know, okay, this is for internal applications. This could be, um, you know, internal web servers or any other internal workloads, and even things like you know, Kubernetes has its own CA that it uses to communicate among various components of um, the control plane and uh, other components of Kubernetes um, and other solutions as well, right? Um, certificates are used in service meshes. Uh, so they're kind of all over the place. Um, so thank you for clarifying, for, you know, for readers, when we're talking about a CA, we're really talking about sort of an internal CA here, right? Not something public that you would get from VeriSign or, you know, whoever else out there, right? Um, so a CA is issuing certificates, what is the purpose of the certificate other than to be like a passport? I mean, there's got to be more to it than just presenting some information, right? We're talking about cryptography here. Yeah. Um, so uh, purpose of a certificate. Um, first, it, I, I think the first thing here is for um, identification and making sure that for internal PKI, um, making sure that entities that are connecting to other entities within your internal network have not been compromised and are actually the entities that they claim to be. Now, um, what do I mean by this? Um, So when you're setting up like an internal PKI, you're going to set up your own certificate authority and condition like entities within your network to trust certificates issued by that certificate authority. And so, um, and your CA would have like policies that defines um, how entities can um, request certificates and get certificates. So if you're using like the um, 
ACME protocol or something, if you're using like the ACME protocol, you can limit the um, entities that are able to get certificates from like your CA using something known as um, external account binding, that's EAB keys, where you provision EAB keys on your CA and then um, set up the devices or entities with these EAB keys and they can use the ACME protocol to <clears throat> automatically receive or request certificates from your CA. Now, when you do this, what happens is that external entities cannot um, access other services within your internal network because for you, for them to assess those services within your internal network, they have to present a certificate that is valid and has been issued by your own CA. So that way you're able to make sure that things within your network can communicate securely with each other and you're able to identify because certificates have like um, provisions for subject names and a lot of other metadata that helps you identify a particular entity or like a device or a person. So there are different types of certificates. You can get like certificates for humans, you can get certificates for um, APIs, you can get certificates for devices, whatever. So one thing I've wondered about, you know, we have the 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 standard for certificates, which I believe is like X509 version three, um, which specifies sort of the fields um, and, and how they're organized and that kind of stuff. It's sort of the, you know, the way the certificate is presented. But where when it comes to identification now for authentication, I get uh, for not authentication. Sorry, when it comes to encryption, I get where the keys that are used by the certificates come into play. But how are the keys used for the purposes of authentication? Or are they used at all? Like uh, how would, uh, I guess maybe it's a matter of just going back and checking okay. the CA, right? Like if I'm if I'm a service and I have a certificate that identifies me and I want to connect to a service, you know, that you're hosting that, you know, says, okay, I'm going to require certificate authentication to make sure that it comes in. What does your service have to do to verify that I'm correct? That, that, that you know, that I didn't just make up this certificate, right? Oh, okay, great. Um, so the way public key cryptography works is that um, there are two keys involved. There's a private key and there's a public key. The private key, well, as the name implies, is kept private. <laughs> the public key, it doesn't matter. You can distribute it to just about anybody. Yeah? It's used to um, verify identity in this case. So... Um, um, so say... Say, um, say I want to talk to you and you need to verify um, my identity or like the validity of my certificate. Uh, you would have my public key, yeah? And so like, I'm, um, like I mentioned earlier, certificates, oh, okay, I probably did not explain that, but like a certificate is a CA, verifying the claim that a public key belongs to a particular entity. So your certificates would contain your public key. So when you when, when I connect to you, I would present my certificate to you. Now, by having my public key, um, and you're trying to like verify that 
I have the private key or this the I um this public key that I claim to have or I claim to own is actually my public key. You would send me like a random data or anything, um, random numbers, and I would sign them with my private key. Now, signing with my private key, the only um, key that can decrypt that information is my public key, and you have that already. So if I sign and if I sign something with my private key, you can decrypt it and verify that, yes, this is actually my public key because the public key you have will be able to decrypt it because um, it's only the public key that can decrypt an information that has been signed by a corresponding private key. I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm gonna repeat it back. So. You know, we have the certificate authority, it issues a certificate, and when it issues that certificate, that certificate also has an associated public and private key. And, and of course, as you said, and as the names imply, the private key you keep private, you don't ever share it with anyone. The public key, it's public, you know, whatever. Um, and if I heard correctly, the public key is actually embedded in the certificate. And so then two services are going to communicate and they want to authenticate to one another, right? Um, and this yeah. could be, so again, use cases here could be like a user presenting a certificate to a service um, and being authenticated as a user, or it could be two services authenticating to one another, um, like yeah. in a service mesh or something of that nature, right? Yeah. Or even like SSH into something. Yeah. Or even SSH, because they use public private key cryptography as well. And I think if I'm not mistaken, can also use certificates. Yeah. So then the, you know, one, one sends a sort of a random hash or, or challenge or whatever to the other, the other encrypts it with the private key and sends it back. The one that sent it then decrypts it with the public key because it has access to that. And if it gets back what it, uh, if, if what it gets matches what it sent, then it knows, okay, mathematically speaking, the public key and the yeah. private key match. And therefore that's, you know, a reasonable proof that this is the service with whom we're communicating based on the identity stored in the certificate. Exactly. And and the the um one prerequisite here is that that other service has to have been configured to, you know, take this certificate authority as like a root of trust. That it has to have been configured to trust the certificate authority that signs the certificate. Yeah, no, that's a great point. We mentioned that earlier. But yeah, you have to make sure you're trusting the entity that issues the uh the certificates, because if you don't trust that they're, you know, legit, then you know, the, the certificates they issue aren't going to be legit either, right? <laughs> so, all right, great point. So what we've got here is we've got these issuing authorities, um, CAs, they're issuing certificates, which are, you know, identity documents or, or, or documents that have, think of as documents, but are entities that claim certain pieces of information, like an organization name, a, a service name, a, a user's name, a common name, email address, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. And they have associated these keys that are mathematically linked, public and private keys. And then that's the basis for how we use our certificates for authentication. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's also the basis for not, they don't necessarily use those private keys for encryption, but they use those private keys and public keys to set up the keys that they'll use for encryption. And then the keys for use for encryption, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, are rotated. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It, um, just like the way um, TLS and like HTTPS works. So use those public and private keys to establish a connection and then exchange like a symmetric key, which will now be used for encryption. Right, right. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Um, okay, so... Um, you know, I think we've covered a lot of the different places where you can use certificates, but we've talked about sort of a user authenticating against the service, a service authenticating against another service, um, you know, uh, encrypting data between two endpoints, which could be a user's computer and a service or between two services. Um, are there any other places where certificates are, are typically used? I, I think I, I've mentioned like SSH into hosts or like servers. Um, I, I think that certificates can be used like anywhere, devices, services, people. You can use certificates for anything that involves any entity at all. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if we think about it, right, it's these things are, are fairly generic or can be fairly generic. And it's really just a matter of anytime entity A wants to authenticate or encrypt traffic with entity B in some sort of way, yeah. that's where a certificate might possibly be leveraged. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've gotten sort of that out of the way and, and listeners have an idea of sort of what is involved in PKI, what the major components are, how they sort of communicate with each other. And of course, folks, we haven't touched on things like, you know, certificate revocation and that kind of thing, certificate revocation lists or um, that sort of thing. And there's, so there's much more to this. Yeah. If we get time, we can, we can dig into that, right? Um, but I want to make sure that we cover things like um, okay, I'm I'm a you know I'm a, a you know uh, architect for a company or whatever, and I'm thinking about building out these systems and implementing some of these systems that kind of stuff. And so I, I look at PKI. What are you know what are some of the things I should be thinking about when I do that? I mean, like, what are the gotchas? You know, what are the what are the you know beware of X that you don't do this. You already mentioned one, and that is like, don't think about leveraging public CAs because then you're gonna be exposing private internal information, right? Um, as a result of the registries that have, or the certificates that have been issued and are, are publicly listed. What other sort of things come to mind, you know, if you were advising someone about, you know, implementing a PKI, right? What would you tell them to think about or, or you know, whatever? So when, when you think about implementing a, a, a PKI, there are two routes to go. You can decide to like um, DIY and do it yourself or like use um, platforms that have consolidated all this and like made it easier. Um, so when people think of PKI, they usually think complicated, expensive, but really secure. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> but I, I I think that now there are modern platforms that have kind of like taken care of like the complications so you don't have to worry about setting up anything yourself and like the price point. So it's fair enough. Um, it's very possible to DIY your PKI, but then you have to ask yourself uh, because some people would go or I'm going to save money. But then you have to ask yourself that um, in terms of like time, are you really being like penny wise and pound foolish? Um, we had this webinar series, series with one of our engineers who told us a story about how he tried to DIY PKI at his former company. And that project took them approximately six months. 
So you have to ask yourself, do you have four, five, six months to build the PKI up from scratch? And I wouldn't advise you to go that way because um, you working with cryptography involves like requires a familiarity with, you know, a set of jargons and just it's really knowledge that only a few set of people just care to dig into. Yeah. And so there are so many mistakes you can make when you try to like DIY your PKI. Um, you could end up using weak key encryption methods. Um, you could end up having your certificates stick around longer than they should. You know, you could end up... Um, I think I mentioned using outdated cryptographic algorithms. Um, you would have to walk around automating your certificates renewals because you don't want your certificates to renew and then services that need to, you know, assess those um, services that have like certificates are no longer able to. And you will have to also think about protecting your private keys. Yeah, there's just a lot that goes into, and then you have to think about building, visibility, monitoring, logging, because you don't want to allow rogue certificates operate in like your environment. And then you also have to think about building revocation. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lot. So our advice is usually just don't DIY it, yeah. Just the way you won't go around building your own um authentication service when there are things like um or you know, just don't DIY your PKI. Just look for a service or a platform that integrates all that and has like a fair price point and go with it. It's much more easier to leave all that complications like people that have dedicated their lives to working with complications. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we probably should, you know, we're doing well on time. We probably should talk about, you know, briefly talk about things like revocation. The idea being that, you know, there may come a time when uh, a CA needs to say this, this certificate and the keys that are associated with that certificate are now considered no longer valid um, for whatever reason, right? Maybe a system became compromised and, you know, you need to reissue a certificate because, you know, whatever. Um, and so that's when we bring in things like, uh, CRLs, right? Certificate revocation lists. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, what's that protocol, uh, OCSP. Yeah. You want to talk briefly about that real quick, just to make sure readers have the idea of what's going on. So when it comes to certificates revocation, there are two types of certificates revocation. There's the active revocation and there is the passive revocation. Um, where I work, we advise act, um, passive revocation over active revocation. Now, what does passive revocation mean? Passive revocation means that you set your certificate lifetimes to be um, just small enough that it's almost impossible for anything or like um, any malicious action to like happen, like just in time access certificates, say service A needs to access service B for a period of three hours, you set up um, certificate issuing and each certificate just has a lifetime of three hours. So what that means is that um, 
even if that service is breached or that certificate is compromised, it just has three hours validity and it's going to expire. And anybody that gains access with that certificate loses access immediately. So um, that's what we advise because in the sense that it's easier, it's easier to maintain, but then there's the side of like active revocation, which happens when um, something just goes wrong and you need to revoke certificates immediately. That requires much more um, infrastructure. Like you mentioned, you have to think about um, certificate revocation, maintaining a certificate revocation list. And then you have to think about um, the um, protocol. And at, at the moment, those things have their problems, actually, which is why we went like the passive revocation routes. Um, there are a couple of complications and like problems with that at the moment. So that's why we went the passive revocation route, but we also support like active revocation, but like passive revocation is just much more efficient. It's like just in time access, just access that is enough for whatever needs to be done and then certificates expire. Yeah, it sounds like the same sort of concept as we would think about in terms of like short-lived credentials, um, you know, that you would might use to access a cloud provider, you know, like, um, you know, somebody does a, you know, a login, and they get, you know, a set of temporary credentials that are good for, let's say, 12 hours, right? And so for 12 hours, they yeah. can access that cloud provider before they need to renew their their credentials again, right? Um, and it sounds like passive revocation, as you're describing it, is very similar to that, right? You're, we're giving you a short-lived certificate that lasts for some period of time. And that would be, you know, sort of dependent on what you're trying to do and what your sort of risk assessment is, right? You know, like what, what risk are you willing yeah. to take to have it out there? And then it, it expires. And because it's expired now, it's no longer valid and you have to renew it. Now, I would assume though that in order to do something like that, there has to be a fairly robust mechanism in place for the automation of issuing new certificates, right? Like if this is a, a manual process that you're following, um, passive revocation and short-lived certificates would just be a ton of overhead, um, unless I'm missing something. You're right, um, which is why I mentioned that um, DIYing your one key thing you have to think about when you decide to DIY your crypto is automation, and that's difficult to do. So that's why I mentioned to look for a platform that consolidates all this and just go with them, because like building out certificates, renewal, um, renewal automation, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Now, there's one final question I want to dig into because I think this might be something that gets overlooked. And I've had some conversations with customers in my consulting days in the past about, well, we have a development environment sitting over here, which is an exact copy of our production environment. And, you know, we want to make it as identical as possible, but then we have to deal with like host names and, and the others. Sometimes there's ways to work around it and that kind of stuff. But it still seems like there, you know, there might be some considerations there for if you're trying to maintain either identical, you know, test staging QA dev environments, right? Like, and dealing with how those certificates are managed, right? As well as like, okay, what about an individual developer and how she or he might manage something like that? Um, what sort of, you know, things might people need to think about in, in that space, um, 
that you want to mention? Um, okay, so I, I do have a talk on um, using HTTPS in development and like, yeah, in development, because I think that's one thing where you're trying to make, make sure that, you know, your development is fairly similar to what happens in like production. And if your production app is like using HTTPS or like TLS certificates, then it makes sense that your local environment should also do that. So you're able to identify bugs or any disparities easier. And that's fairly easy for like individual developers to set up themselves using uh, Open Source Certificate Authority, which is StepCA and uh, command line to StepCLI. So that's fairly easy. You can just do that in like five steps. I have, um, have a talk on that or like a YouTube video on that. And that's like fairly easy for individual developers to do on their end. So they're making sure that um, there's similarity between their local environments and what's the state of production. Okay, perfect. Listeners, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so that you can go check that out um, separately and get some more details from uh, Linda on, you know, sort of, hey, if you're a developer or you're working in a development environment and you need to make sure that you're using HTTPS or HTTP over TLS uh, in development environments, you know, how, how do we go about doing that? What's a good way of doing that? Um, it's funny, I've actually had, I, 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 I keep this list of, uh, and I don't know if you do this or not, I keep this list of all the things, all the weird technologies or new technologies or, you know, things that I come across while I'm reading, right? And, um, and I've had it on my, on my list for a while to go try the step CLI, um, because I haven't, I haven't actually like personally tried it yet. Right. Um, but I saw a reference to it somewhere along the way. And so I just captured it in my list. And then when you mentioned you're a small step, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I need to go back and do that. Of course I haven't done that. It's like, you know, the, the list just gets longer and longer and longer. Right. Uh, yeah. Same here. <laughs> all right. Great. Um, well, thank you so much, Linda. This has been, uh, I think, um, really, really useful. Uh, lots of good information here. Um, again, you know, I think folks probably, you know, if, if you're listening, you're probably familiar with PKI. You probably have have you know messed with it wrong, but I think there's some additional details here that Linda shared that I think would are really going to be useful. And it, you know, it's sort of the ubiquity of of using PKI for so many things. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this um, uh, before starting the show. I'm thinking about, you know, things like, you know, email, S-MIME uh, uses PKI, right? We've talked about sort of, you know, the web PKI, which, you know, is what everybody's accustomed to, you know, going to a secured website and making sure that you're getting a secure connection there. But but then, you know, service-to-service -service authentication and a service mesh like Istio or Kuma from Kong or, or you know, the certificate authority that is generated by Kubernetes when, it, when you bootstrap a Kubernetes certificate that then is then used to authenticate everything else that happens in that, in that uh, internal to that cluster, just all over the place, like certificates are everywhere. So I think anytime that we spend sort of making sure that we really understand what's going on here and we understand the intricacies uh, is just gonna be something that pays off dividends sort of across a wide variety of, of disciplines um, uh, in the IT space. So thank you for, for sharing. Before we wrap up, are there any sort of final thoughts that you wanna share with listeners or anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you wanted to make sure you mentioned or anything like that? Um, I, I think my final words would just be that uh, if, if anybody needs to dig in further, 
um, I would probably send you the link and you can include it in like the show notes. We have like a really detailed article on like what PKI is about, how to approach it, how to start thinking about it, like, you know, how to just generally think about designing your own PKI. And it's called Everything You Need to Know About PKI. So, um, yeah, people can just check that out and just start educating themselves if they want that. It's very in-depth and very detailed. So. Yeah, that's perfect. And yeah, listeners, we'll make sure that a link to that resource is included in the show notes so you can grab it from the show notes and go check out uh, that resource. Um, All right, Linda, again, thank you so very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, One more time, do you want to just let listeners know where they can find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at underscore MS Linda. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for being on the show. Super helpful. Loved chatting with you. Um, And listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Full Stack Journey. I want to um, just point out again that we're always open to hearing your feedback on this episode or any episode of the podcast. So feel free to hit me online. um, I'm available on Twitter as at Scott underscore low. You can also contact the podcast directly at FSJ podcast on Twitter. Um, I'm also on uh, Mastodon, uh, on the Fostodon instance as at Scott Eslow. You're welcome to contact me there. Um, And of course, I'm in all kinds of other places all over the internet. So if you search, you wouldn't be too hard to find me somewhere in Slack or Twitter or whatever. Um, But thank you so much for joining and thank you for listening. This is the Full Stack Journey podcast, where too much learning is never enough. Mm -hmm.